We're the show that tackles some tough topics sometimes. And one of the toughest topics I think that we've always covered is about family court and custody cases. It's been research. We've had callers. We've had all sorts of personal experiences. And we've had a lot of research presented on the show that alludes to huge problems when it comes to family court, especially in the area of custody. Today we have a woman who has just finished a, a marvelous study, and I'm hoping to learn a lot more about it as you do as well. Joan Meyer, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome, Heather. Joan, I, you have such a list of credentials. I, I'm just going to do you a lot of disservice by basically saying you're a professor of clinical law at George Washington University Law School and that you are the founder and legal director of the Domestic Violence Legal Empowerment and Appeals Project, which is DV LEAP. Um, I have heard a lot about both of these uh, institutions, obviously, and um, marvelous work you're doing. But the work, and I, and I would love to have you come back to talk about uh, starting DV LEAP, which is an interesting organization as well. But what we're talking about today is your latest research. And I have a copy of an article that was in Law and, in, and Inequity, a journal of theory and practice, that came out earlier this year. It was titled, Mapping Gender, Shedding Empirical Light on Family Court's Treatment of Cases Involving Abuse and Alienation. As I read this, Joan, I realized that this is a, just a precursor to the actual research that you have just completed. And um, I'd like to know more about it. So um, tell us, what what's the reason behind this research, and what did you assume going into the research? What did you, what was your hypothesis? What was your assumption that you would learn? So um, thank you for correctly pointing out that the what's been published is just the pilot study, and we are actually not quite finished with the research in the full three-year study. Um, and the reason for the pilot study, which originally was not a pilot study, originally it was a study that I just wanted to do because um, uh, my work for DV Leap as well as um, uh, my broader work as a professor of clinical law had taught me that women were having a lot of difficulty in family court in keeping their children safe when the father was abusive. And um, we at DV Leaf have litigated a lot of those cases. We have reviewed and consulted on a lot of those cases. And um, they are very, very problematic in our experience. But it was my sense that neither judges nor evaluators nor public policymakers nor most of the world either knows about the problem or believes that it's real. And they tend to think that if a mom is claiming abuse and the judge doesn't believe it, it's because the mom's lying. Joan, I'm going to interrupt you for just a second because I think I had a personal experience that will help our audience understand exactly what we're talking about. I have a friend who's very well educated, worked in court systems, um, just really, uh, you know, respected and uh, and respectful person. Mentioned to me that she had met a woman who had lost custody of her children, and I went, "Yeah, unfortunately, that happens, you know, frequently." And she said, "Well, I think there's something wrong with this woman," and I went, "Really?" And she called me back uh, a couple weeks later, and she said, well, it was, it was, this woman is a drinker. I said, really? Did she drink before she lost custody of her children? Because, quite frankly, I'm not a drinker, but I think if I lost custody of my children, I could turn into one very easily. And she mm -hmm. said, well, that doesn't make any difference. And I went, it makes all the difference. You know, what was this woman like before she lost custody of her children? My friend said, well, she must have done something terrible. She must have had something wrong with her, or she wouldn't have lost custody. The I terrible thing that she probably normal. did was she probably reported abuse by the father. Exactly. So what? So yeah. So you know, I, so I we think that that 
fully illustrates the point you're making, which is people don't get it unless they're impacted by it. That's right. And we get so many callers calling in and saying, you won't believe what happened to me. And then I tell them chapter and verse, and they're like, how did you know? <laughs> and I'm like, it's happening all over the country, in fact, all over the world. Um, so the reason for the study was that I was really frustrated at a policy level with getting people to understand, in particular, a particular doctrine or theory called parental alienation, which is the primary vehicle for denying abuse by the abusers themselves and often by evaluators and guardians ad litem and a lot of these neutral appointed professionals who kind of minimize or ignore abuse claims, and sometimes they even turn them against the mother who is reporting the abuse. Um, and we felt that parental alienation was being misused in this way, and a, a huge part of the family court world, professional world, believes parental alienation is a real thing, and it's um, it's neutral, and it's a bad you know it's a bad thing in itself. It, it it means that one parent is turning the kids against the other parent, and and that's why abuse is being brought up in all these cases because these moms are trying to turn the children against the father and get the father out of their lives, and so this belief that parental why alienation it, is a real thing. Different? Why was a problem. They don't ever assume that it's the father trying to turn the the children against the mother. You know, I mean. It, well, it's so so precisely in my experience, I find uh, experientially, and I think you know a lot of my colleagues do as well around the country. Um, when fathers, and often they're abusive fathers, do turn kids against the moms, it's not taken that seriously or, or that greatly worried about. But when moms are seen as turning the kids against the father, it's seen as you know the worst possible kind of abuse of a child. And and so what I wanted to do in this study, uh, what I wanted to start out looking at was basically could I show empirically that parental alienation is gender biased because this, the claim in the courts and by many of these professionals that it's a neutral theory, it applies to either parent, it's equally bad for either parent, et cetera, et cetera. We knew it was invented in a gender biased way, but they were claiming, well, but it's not used, it's not it's not meant to be gender biased, and it's it's a neutral theory. So I wanted to show that it, that it was actually gender biased. And so I started out with the help of a series of law student interns and then eventually a really fabulous, I lucked out and got a fellow who was a law graduate and also had a public health statistics background. And he finished the survey for me. But basically we collected a, hand, you know, a number of cases electronically in order to empirically analyze what happened in those cases, what was alleged, what did the courts find, and what were the outcomes. So that's, that's the, the intro that to the policy. One of the Sorry. things that I was reading in, in the article that I read about your study is the, the difficulty of collecting this kind of data. Right. It's very difficult. So there have been studies around the country of particular courts because sometimes a research team will go into a particular court and they'll open all the file folders and they'll read through them and they'll analyze what's happening there. But it's impossible to do that nationally. There's you know thousands of courts even in a given state, let alone in the country. And um, you know it's just impossible to get a hands-on look at, at these cases, nor do courts generally log statistics about what they're doing in these cases. So the 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 way that occurred to me to try to get neutral empirical data was to go online and get published opinions because um when an opinion is uh is written um at least when it's written by a court of appeals it is almost always published uh, online and even when they call it unpublished it, they put it they post it online which i find kind of amusing um and <laughs> And some of the um, trial court judges who write opinions also post their opinions online. So the best source of just you know lots and lots of opinions in custody cases is online. 
So what we did was we did, and again, we wanted a neutral study. We didn't want to be hand-picking our cases so people would say, oh, you picked the cases to prove your theory. We wanted to see what's really going on out there randomly. So we, we just did a search for cases involving parental alienation, cases involving abuse claims, and a series of other search terms, and we turned up about 240 cases that, that fit our search um, that we did not handpick at all. And then we coded them to see basically which parent did either parent allege any, some kind of abuse? Did either parent allege some kind of alienation? What did the judge find? Did they find abuse? Did they find alienation? And then what did the judge do? And so the, the article you just mentioned, which actually is hot off the press, it just came out um, at the end of June, um, is the write-up of all of that data that we found in the, um, in the pilot study. Okay. So, and again, I want to make sure because, you know, our audience isn't necessarily made up of lawyers, and, and I want to make sure that we understand it. So if I kind of sound like I'm I'm trying to dumb things down, I'm not. I'm just trying to make sure that I, oh, everybody oh, understands absolutely. what you're saying. Um, so basically what you did is we, we, we all hear things. We hear things, we, and we call that anecdotal information. We get the stories from people, and we know that this is a problem, at least for a, lo a, a group of people, but how do we prove that's a problem? And typically we prove it by somehow or other getting numbers to other people. The difficulty of getting the numbers for this was that whenever you went into a courtroom, people would have to go through and look at this data, and then they would make notes or whatever, or they would come up with some sort of code, which means that some of whatever they had in their brains would come through it as well. What you're saying is you designed this so that it was completely neutral. Nobody, you know, nobody's thinking, nobody's biases, nobody's anything, uh, really had anything to do with how you pulled this information off the Internet. Is, is that right? Um, that's close. If I could just correct that a little bit. The problem with going sure. into courtrooms and looking at folders isn't bias per se. I mean, there's, there's always bias issues in, in pretty much any study that studies human action. But sure. um, the problem with that is that you can't get a national picture. You can get one court here, one court there. And it's very easy for one, um, one study of one court to be ignored. And in fact, they have been. We ha you know, there are about six or eight studies like that around the country. And they all point in the same direction, but nobody pays any attention to them. Um, what I wanted was a national picture. And it's impossible to do that in an on-the-ground, hands-on way, you have to do it electronically. So that's why I went that direction. Now, in terms of the bias of the study, I, I just want to be clear here. The, the, the only play, I mean, we made it as unbiased as we possibly could because the things that we coded for, that we were reading the opinion to identify, were objective things. You know, did the mom allege abuse? Yes or no. Did the dad allege abuse? Yes or no. Did the judge find abuse? Yes or no. Most of that is completely objective. There's some things that get fuzzy around the edges here and there, but by and large, we stuck to the pretty pretty clear stuff. Um, sure. The bigger study, you know, it, it's gotten more complicated because we have a much huger database. We have almost 5,000 cases in it, and um, uh, opinions are written poorly often, and you don't have all the information you want when you're trying to analyze who started with custody in order to figure out who ended with custody, and things like that can get a little murky. But that was the idea, and, and we stuck as close as we could to things that couldn't really be debated in terms of what we could. Well, and absolutely. I mean, human beings can never be 100% right. without any you know, external influence, right. bias, et cetera, et cetera, but we're picking hairs there. I mean, for the most part, right. this is pretty objective. Okay, so let's move over to what the study found. Now, again, you know, having done my homework here, I know that what you expected was that your study would confirm what some of these smaller localized studies were showing, that in fact courts were favoring fathers as opposed to the popular belief that courts favor mothers. 
yes, that they were favoring fathers. Well, yes, but also we found many more things than we looked for. We we were looking first to see whether alienation was biased, and it was. I'll tell you about that in a second. But then we found a lot of other things as well about how courts respond to abuse, and particularly how they respond to different types of abuse claims by mothers. Oh. Uh, and that was where the sort of the stunning surprises came. Shall I start okay. with the, the gender bias and alienation? Let's do that. Okay. All right. So the first point, and this was a surprising result, that um, by and large, fathers allege that moms are alienating a lot more than mothers allege fathers are. But there are some cases where mothers allege fathers are. And what we found in those cases was that um, judges were believing the alienation claims equally, whether it was a mother or father oh. claiming it. 57% of the time, it was believed. And that surprised us. However, um, and that did not refute our gender bias hypothesis because what we found was that the impact of the alienation was completely gendered. So that... Um, that um, even when just claiming alienation, fathers were more than twice as likely as mothers to win the case. Um, and when the judge chose to believe the alienation, fathers won almost every case, 95% of the time. Mothers won four-fifths of the time, but that difference is, is over a four... Um, they were the, That difference indicates that fathers are four times more likely to win than mothers are even when their alienation claims are credited. And then finally, and this is perhaps the most striking point about alienation being gendered, is that even when courts did not credit, did not believe the alienation claim brought by a father, even then fathers won much more than mothers. So um, five times more likely that a father whose alienation claim was not credited would win the case than a mother whose alienation claim was not credited, which is pretty stunning. Wow. So in other words, we found that, you know, basically, as we suspected, alienation is a theory that was designed for men. It was invented to protect men from sexual abuse claims, and that's how it works. It doesn't really do much for women when they bring it up. Well, you know, that's interesting because I've, um, I, I think, well, I'm not sure. If, yeah, I, I got my master's degree with a focus on domestic violence from University of Colorado Denver from their gendered studies program. And alienation was something that a few of the women in, in my cohort kind of believed would help women. So this this kind of a finding is, is uh, startling. And We, we wow. see a lot of women who support parental alienation because they've had their kids turned against them and alienated from them by the father. And yeah. and they're the ones who get angry at me when I say it's it's you know it's false or it's falsely used because they know it's happened to them and they know it's real. My point is not that it doesn't happen. My point is that the way it's constructed and used in court is false. <laughs> it's constructed and used to deny abuse claims by mothers and children. That's a false use of it. The idea that a parent can turn a child against the other, of course that's possible, and of course that happens. Sure. But as it happens, it mostly happens when abusers get their hands on the kid, and then they systematically turn the kid against the protective parent. That We see that a lot, which you know, is precisely why I don't deny the existence of, of this concept. You know, one of the things that I never understood is that um, there is uh, routinely and has been for decades a, a, a consideration in child custody cases of custodial interference, where if you right, purposely go right. out of your way to make it difficult for your partner to have a relationship with your children – then that's bad and it's punishable and all that other stuff. How is that different from alienation? We never hear about that. That is a great question. It is really the same thing, and here's what the difference is. Um, alienation 
is a social science theory that brings with it all this social science gobbledygook that I would say is, is false um, about the psychology of children and the psychology of the parents and the necessary remedies and blah, 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 blah. Whereas custodial interference is simply capturing a factual conduct and saying, this is something someone did. It's not okay. We're going to punish it in whatever way we punish it. Parental alienation comes from psychobabble, and it's used in a psychobabble way, and it's used to explain um, so many things that, that it should not be explaining. For instance, anytime a kid acts out badly, and it may be a situation where either the kid was abused or the kid is growing up in a house with domestic violence, if, if they believe that the mother's an alienator, they will attribute the kid's bad behavior to alienation. So they take this theory and it, they use it to explain anything they want that relates to abuse and turn it against the mother instead. Whereas if you just had the concept, and actually someone should write an article about this, if you just had the concept about, of custodial interference, it's a factual behavior. We respond to it in whatever ways we do. But because we have this theory of parental alienation, we have all the psychology that's sort of on its coattails that's completely unscientific and unsupported, um, it allows us, it's a much greater weapon for people to deny all of the evidence of abuse because they chalk it all up to alienation. Yeah. Well, and all of this comes down to abuse. And you mentioned that the reactions of judges to claims of abuse was startling in your study. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, um, I can. That's skipping a couple things I was going to mention. Do you want me to add well, you to know mention? Why? Go ahead. You're, you're on oh, okay. the roll. So okay, so, the <laughs> so the, I'm, looking through, I'm going through my, my charts. The, the next point about alienation was that not only did it help men win, but it triggered, and this was something that we believed, but we weren't expecting to see such clear evidence of it in the study, um, it triggered women losing custody. Um, and so what we found was a significant gender bias in these switches of custody um, in that when fathers merely accuse mothers of alienating the children, 50% of the time the judges switched, took custody away from mothers and gave it to fathers. Um, when moms alleged you alienation... Know, and again, I'm sorry to, sorry to interrupt your, your, strain, your, your thought here, but in all of these cases that I've heard, it, it occurs to me, and I don't spend a lot of time in the courtroom, but it has always occurred to me that judges that are particularly punitive to women when yes. they've had an accusation placed against them. Um, men yes. can be, you know, have documented domestic violence. They can have allegations of sexual abuse. And, they, and at the worst, they will be given supervised visitation. But it seems right. to me that moms, if they have a, an allegation, uh, you know, levied against them, boom, you're done. You don't you so, have children. Yes, it's very extreme. And that was why we wanted to look at gender bias, because it's so clearly not the same response when it's, when it's against a man. But that's another uh, example of your great question, which is what's different about parental alienation from custodial interference. Would you necessarily take custody away from a parent who is committing custodial interference? Not necessarily. But if you have a parent who's committing parental alienation, all of a sudden you've got this whole kind of ball of wax that she's evil. She's evil in so many psychological ways that we simply have to get the child away from her because she's going to influence that child so deeply and so profoundly with her evil alienating tendencies and behaviors. And so it has much more power, and this is the power it has. It has the power to cause women to lose custody because it's sort of like, I call it the scarlet A. If you've been called an alienator, you're wearing a scarlet A, and you can do no right, basically. Well, if you're funny a woman. You use that analogy, you know, that kind of Hester Prynne analogy, because that's the way exactly. it strikes me. This whole conversation is like, this is back in the days of the witches. You know, yes. let's just, yes. it, it's almost like. It is kind of witch like, you know, 
yeah, because yeah, they attribute powers to women powerful. that no one has. You know, they'll they'll attribute. You know, like women. I've had children, cases where children started hallucinating, and had to be hospitalized because of the abuse they were suffering. And and basically, all of that gets chalked up to mom's alienating behaviors. You know, kids who may act out hideous aspects of their abuse. All of that's chalked up to. I mean, it's it's absurd the idea that women can concoct the kinds of things that you see in these cases where children are being abused, and yet it's all chalked up to mom. She's all powerful. Um, so it is very much like the Hester Prynne kind of the witch kind of image. The, the, the actually. power, the power uh, that yeah. women must, you know. Right. I, I, from my own ex- experience, and again, I like to throw in a few things here because this is a pretty heavy topic. So let's throw in it a little is. bit of something else. Uh, um, uh, when my kids were little, um, my husband was mad at me for something. I can't remember what we'd been having a little tiff, and so he was in the room bedroom with my son, and my um, I was in the bedroom with my daughter. We were putting them to bed, and I had been complaining that there was something. Uh, there were sparks coming from a light switch, you know, in my son's room. And mm-hmm. uh, my husband just kind of blew it off and went, yeah, 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 it was just my imagination or something, right? And so <laughs> we were putting these kids to bed, and all of a sudden my husband plugged something into the outlet and fuse blew. And oh, he wow. went, now look what your mother's done. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly, and exactly. <laughs> and I just started laughing, and I went, wow, look at that. I can make sparks fly from the other Was room. he joking? Oh, wow. He was yeah, joking, he was right? I <laughs> just checking. <laughs> but, but, you know, the point was, well, you know, he yeah. was joking like yeah. he was joking, you know. But, right, you right. know, I mean, I just laughed because it was absurd. But it's yeah. the same kind of notion. Look how it's very much like is. that. She can cast yeah. herself from the, on and the entire she, and, other side of the house. And poison know. the children and not even intentionally. Like I've had cases where they say, I know you don't mean to, but your attitude towards your husband, your fear of him is rubbing off on them. And it's very, very, very damaging. And they'll take kids away when it's not even intentional. Because this parental alienation thing is such a pathology and it's so insidious. I'm sorry. Even when the kids are afraid. Oh God, yes. Because that's the that's the biggest proof of alienation. She's made this kid afraid for no reason. That's how evil she is. We have to get this kid out of here so the kid can experience how unfearful this parent, this safe parent, is. Who they're afraid of. Another thing that boggles me about these whole situations is it doesn't occur to anybody that if you're mean to a kid, the kid doesn't want to be around you. Um, you know, it's kind of out there, but they actually, it, it's, there's a lot of protections, and if you can't show full-fledged child abuse, and if you can't show that child welfare, the CPS agency has recognized that it is child abuse, they'll, they'll point to any number of things to poo-poo and minimize so-called mean behavior, let alone abusive behavior. Wow. Okay. No, so there's a thousand reasons. Kids, kids may not even want to be with the dad because he broke up the family. They may not want to be with the dad because he's with a new woman or he has a new baby. I mean, there's a thousand reasons kids may resist visitation with their no longer custodial parent that have nothing to do with any kind of abuse. And yet all of this gets blamed on the mother because no kid would ever normally be afraid of or angry at or hostile to their father. That's basically what drives this. And yet judges for no more than the regular population. I mean, there are idiot judges just like there are idiot plumbers and idiot school teachers and whatever. Um, but, you know, but for the general, you know, I mean, they're no more ignorant or uneducated or prejudiced than the general population. And yet we would think of a judge as somebody who would be able to see through some of this stuff, who would be able to be a deeper thinker. And how does this occur? Why does this not occur? You would hope. And I'm not not talking about male judges. I've talked to female judges. Oh, absolutely. I agree. 
Wow. It's similar. So, I mean, they're, it's being poured into them all the time because the alienation um, cottage industry, we call it, which is a lot of psychologists who make a living off of testifying in court in custody cases and, and providing opinions in custody cases, tend to make a ton of money off of this kind of testimony and this kind of opinion. And they do trainings, and the judges are hearing it all the time, and they take it very, very seriously. They think it's a terrible thing. There's a lot of reasons for that, and I've written other articles about it. But, um, you know, one thing is that I think we have a, a culture that has felt a lack of fathering for many generations. And so uh, the culture and the judges really want to reward fathers who come to court and say they want a parent. So there's sort of already kind of a bias toward fathers in these cases that's not necessarily conscious, but that's like, you know, kids need fathers, yay fathers, go fathers, and mothers who object to that are bad by definition. There's some of that. There's some of this junk science. Well, yes, but... Yes, but if you tell me that this abuse is false and it's really fabricated, I'm going to feel much better and much happier about my life and my work and what's happening in these families that I'm seeing than if I have to believe this abuse is real and this kid is not only going to lose their father potentially, but is, or it's either that or risk ongoing abuse. I mean, that's just agonizing, and I think people really avoid facing it. Um, and then there's a lot of vicarious trauma. You know, that people are being exposed to so much abuse that they're really numbing themselves and shutting down and refusing to take it in because they can't take it in. And that turns into, you know, pretty hostile treatment often. Okay, so back to the study. You found okay. that uh, alienation actually helped men win custody, and it actually yeah. triggered women. Yeah, take uh, custody from away the from the mothers, yes, even when it was just alleged. And let me see, when it was... Um, Let's see. If the father's alienation claim was credited, the, the rate of custody switches increased to 69%. Mothers, uh, alien, when mothers' alienation claims were credited, they received custody half the time. Um, but, but again, mothers, um, there's so few cases where the where the father starts with custody that it's hard to compare um, these kinds of switches in both directions because there's relatively few cases that could switch to mothers. Um, and then finally, uncredited, where courts don't recognize the alienation claims. Um, you have um, fathers still uh, still winning custody away from the mother 25% of the time, uh, whereas for mothers it's only happening 10% of the time. So it's a pretty stark and striking difference in terms of losses of custody when alienation is alleged, whether it's believed or not. Okay, so, okay. sorry, so go ahead. We'll move on to the next one. I'm not even going to ask you okay, so then, you're, you're on a roll. Go. Oh, well, so the next section is, is about abuse, and we we kind of we had sensed from our experience that child sexual abuse is is kind of nuclear in these cases. It's a lightning rod, but we weren't weren't necessarily intending to find data on this. But boy, did we find data on this! So first of all, what we found was that the rates at which courts are willing to believe abuse varies a lot depending on the type of abuse. Um, for instance, um, courts were willing to believe domestic violence claims 59% of the time, but they were only willing to believe child abuse, physical, 19% of the time, and child sexual abuse only 6% of the time. Overall, if you look at all the cases where there was some kind of abuse claim, they, the, that was believed only one quarter of the time. So just by the way, footnote, uh, when people think that any kind of abuse is kind of a bombshell that people are using to win custody. They couldn't be more wrong. It's not working. Um, when, let's see. It, it sounds like it's doing just the opposite. No, it's backfiring, absolutely. So that's, that's yeah. point one, is that courts aren't believing it. Now, when you look at the win rates, like who wins when there's an abuse claim, this is very interesting. We had, a, we had some cases because we, 
the main criterion we were looking for in, in when we researched for cases was alienation. We didn't require every case to be about abuse. So we had some cases where there was an alienation issue but not an abuse issue. Fathers won their um, cases 67% of the time when they were not accused of abuse. But when they were accused of abuse, any kind, they won more often, 72% of the time. And when they Are were you accused... No, I'm not kidding you. I mean, it's a small difference, but it's it's more. When the mother alleged domestic violence, fathers won about that often, 73% of the time, but get a load of this. When, when child abuse was alleged, now this is actually a little lower, fathers won a little less, but still 69% of the time. But get this, when child sexual abuse was alleged, fathers had the highest likelihood of winning, 81% of the time. What I mean, I know your study didn't find explanations. I mean, that's not the the purpose of a study. Well, the explanations are they're in a lot of my other writings and a lot of our briefs and a lot of the other research we do. But so how do you how do I explain that? Very, it's very consistent with what I had been sort of learning just from doing cases and reviewing cases, and that is that I think courts are not as threatened by domestic violence allegations because they don't think it matters that much to custody. They're willing to pretty much ignore it with regard to custody, but they know that child abuse isn't something they're allowed to ignore or could ignore when it comes to custody, so they get much more punitive. And when they become punitive, they're shooting the reporter, shooting the messenger, uh, being the mother and the child. So they're blaming them. If they choose not to believe it, which they almost always do when it's sexual abuse, uh, they not only do they not believe it, they punish for having it raised. And again, it's sort of the insidiousness of this parental alienation theory, which is that the idea that this is one huge pathology on the part of the mother and the child. And um, we've just got to get that kid away from that sick, sick, poisonous mother. Wow. Um, Wow. I'm astounded by that. Um, So when child abuse is alleged, it's, what did you say, 67, 62% of the time? 81%. Oh, when it's alleged, father's likelihood of winning is 81% of the time. When there's no abuse alleged, they're likely to win 72% of the time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm gobsmacked. I am absolutely gobsmacked. Um, How can this happen? How can this happen? I mean, it's a measure of what we've been seeing in our cases, which is that not only are courts not believing abuse claims, they are punishing mothers and children, for them. That's what it is. And and for whatever reason, domestic violence doesn't threaten the courts because they don't think they need to pay it that much mind, and so they don't punish as much, even when, of course, it may have a lot to do with child risk and child safety. And here's here's the one that's, I think, the real gobsmacker. This is the one that, that um, when I presented this to some not terribly friendly evaluators, they kept saying, wait, wait, and they made me repeat it over and over because they didn't believe it. We had only seven cases where um, courts validated or credited both the abuse claims by the mother and the alienation cross-claims by the father, okay? So you've got a judge looking at supposedly bad behavior by both parents, but in one case, direct abuse of, of children and or mother, and in the other case, psychological hostility that might be rubbing off on the kid or might even be intentional. Okay. Who wins those cases? Every single time, the father, the abuser. It's only seven, and we're hoping in the bigger study we'll have a lot more to work with. But, you know, it's surprising to me that every single one of those came out in the father's column, you know even though he was, his abuse was believed. 
and some of them involve oh child God. abuse. Well, you know, I, this has been a couple of years now, but I had a family court judge um, that I was speaking to, um, and I asked her, please tell me, you know, how, what goes, goes through a judge's mind when there is a father who has documented, uh, I, I didn't even say accusations, I said documented domestic violence in his background, mm-hmm. And you have a mother who's been the primary caregiver. What goes through the judge's mind when that judge then awards custody to the father with the documented Mm -hmm. DV over that Mm -hmm. of the mother who's been the primary caregiver? And this judge said to me absolutely sincerely that, well, you have to understand this, this, you know, this woman is frantic. She's uh, kind of like, you know, nutsy and she doesn't, she can't even take care, get her own life in order. So if the domestic violence isn't so bad, we'll give mm-hmm. it to the father who's standing there and mm-hmm. he's got things under control. He presents well. Yeah, yeah. He presents well. No, we've, yeah. we've seen that forever, that if the woman seems at all not together in any way, they will point to that as the excuse or the reason that she's not an adequate parent. When in fact, uh, as we all know, going through this kind of litigation and not having your kids protected and not having your claims believed is, will make anyone crazy. And abusers. That coupled with the idea that some man who has taught you that he will win uh, at at all costs, that man is telling you, I'm going to take away your children. And you don't think that's supposed to make a woman frantic? Yeah, exactly. And somehow we're going to reward that because he's behaving in a calm way. By the way, that fits what the studies of judges' credibility assessments have shown, which is that judges are very little, are basically no better than the man on the street at assessing who's telling the truth on the stand. But they think they know, and they judge it based on persona. They like the guy. He's calm. He's likable. He's a good guy. I'm going with him. Ah, he lost it once or twice, but she she would drive anyone crazy. She's not so together. I don't really like her. She's getting upset and angry. I'm going the other way. And it's, it's a popularity contest is what I call it. Although I have had cases where the mother was so calm on the stand, the judge blamed her for that and said, "You, I was you know, just you couldn't that. have been They're abused." About, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, I've it's seen like, that too. I, I keep thinking somebody should come up with, you know, a, we have all these organizations and foundations and things to help people. Somebody should come up with a foundation to teach women in these situations how to act. How yeah, except I don't think that there's a formula. I mean, we all try to tell our clients behave this way, behave that way. But truthfully, since I've seen both ways treated as a reason for not believing, I'm not sure it matters because I think there's such a strong um there's such a strong predisposition against mothers, especially mothers alleging abuse. And such a strong predisposition for fathers to, to, to basically give people But Joan, we have this huge men's rights lobby. I mean if you Google domestic That's violence true. Fully two-thirds of everything that pops up is some sort of men's rights thing, talking about how judges are in favor of women and how courts favor women and how women do this and women do that. It's a great strategy because everyone believes that. And then the judges who lean toward the father think they're doing something special. Whereas, in fact, and that's the other thing that I, the reason I want this data so badly is I want to show the judges how biased towards fathers they are, like across the board. The country is biased towards fathers and get over this nonsense that mothers are, you know, all they have to do is walk in to win custody. It's completely the reverse. But no. other studies have actually shown that, and it still hasn't really mattered. No. No, I think but the father's rights people are very clever in arguing that because it serves them very well. But you also pointed out that your study is a national study. The others have right. been isolated in specific areas, and so I could that's say, well, true. that's particular. That that's true. With us. That's true. You know, 
So yeah. this is going to hopefully carry a lot of weight. And, of course, the Saunders study, um, you know, I mean, may, have have we reached a, a a tipping point in this? I mean, are we starting to um, educate people? Are we starting to educate judges um, and court personnel? I don't think the Saunders study has made much difference, to be honest. I mean, I know Barry loves it. I think it has a lot of great stuff in it. It has some problems in it, too, and it's just complicated and murky. I'm hoping that my study, because it's kind of clear-cut and it's purely empirical and it's not it's not judging uh, the way Saunders is sort of having to judge what evaluators do and don't do and stuff like that. This is... Um, well, actually, that's not that's not fair. That's not right. I think what he did was he assessed their beliefs and he correlated their beliefs. But it's just, again, it's complex. I'm just trying to say, here's what's happening in the family courts around the country, folks. You know, and I'm hoping that it's going to show. The pilot certainly showed that it's the opposite of what people think, and it's incredibly troubling when it comes to abuse, reported abuse. Um, but um, it remains to be seen. You know, and our full study is not done yet, and I think it's going to be less shocking because I think we have. You know, we're going from 240 cases with a pretty straightforward set of codes to. 4,600 cases, 46, yeah, 4,600, almost 5,000 cases with a much more complex set of codes. Um, so I think we're going to get slightly murkier results than this, but I think we're still going to confirm, likely, I mean, I don't know yet, but I think it's likely we'll still confirm a bias for fathers and that abuse is not being believed and that women are being punished for alleging it. But but we're, you know, we're going to find out. We'll see. Yeah. Well, and um, you also talk about the, these two worlds, that are merging down, uh, you know, I mean, you have you have a uh, domestic violence community, you have advocates, you have people who work with victims, you have people who, you know, uh, um, deal with uh, abuse and, and um, all of these issues, but then you have the judges and the domestic or, and the guardians ad litem and the uh, court evaluators right. and the psychologists, right. and you have all of this this industry of the court um, compared to the industry, and uh, to be fair, of the domestic violence community, they don't seem to share the same information. They don't seem to share the same beliefs. They don't seem they don't. to have any they don't. connection. I agree. It's, it's, you know, and I write briefly about that in this piece, and I've written a little about it in others. But there, that's the thing that was really triggered me to do an empirical study, which has not been my past expertise, although I do, I am the daughter of a statistician, so it's not entirely surprising, but but I've not done this work before, but um, but um, it, it was that frustration that it's kind of like an ideological battle. Their view is that they're neutral and that we aren't, and our view is that they're biased against women alleging abuse and for fathers accused of abuse, and, you know, it's just very difficult to win that debate, like who's biased and who's ideological and who's objective. I mean, I'm convinced that we're objective and they're not, but they're equally convinced the other way, and so I was hoping that this empirical data would kind of cut across that and say, look, this is what's really going on. Let's stop arguing about ideology and look at the numbers. Yeah, because we'll it seems see. to me just the numbers that, you, you know, I mean, if there is a claim of sexual abuse, it seems to me that at the very least you'd probably have a 50-50, you know, custody right. uh, win, not an 81% win. Right, I mean, right. It, is it is it likely that eighty one percent of the you know of, of the people who say of, of, the child of women who report child sexual abuse have fabricated it right and and we yeah. don't have definite answers to that but there are other studies that absolutely back that line of reasoning by showing uh, there are some earlier studies one in Canada and one in the U S uh, fairly large studies showing that when parents lied about child abuse 
and one of them was just child sexual abuse, I think. It was very, very, very rarely a custodial mother and child. It was almost always um, the non-custodial parent making it up, fabricating it. And it was a, it was pretty rare altogether. Far, you know, contrary to um, the court's assumption that women, you know, are constantly bandying about false claims of sexual abuse, which is a very con- common assumption among courts. Um, these studies showed that it was a, actually quite a rare allegation, at least at that date. It was a couple decades ago. A uh, very rare allegation and, and almost never fabricated by a mother. Um, and same with child abuse more broadly. So uh, the objective research that's out there that looks at child abuse claims in custody litigation, and, it, and it's hard to be sure uh, how to validate those claims, but they used very subjective measures of validation, like did a, you know, did a child protection agent believe it, that kind of thing. Um, those analyses found that women almost never fabricate this stuff, women and children. And yet, it's a very uh, firm conviction among people who practice in, in um, family court that it's, it's commonly fabricated. And it's just, I don't think it has any empirical basis, but it, it is actually brings us full circle back to the origin of the theory of parental alienation because Richard Gardner, who invented parental alienation syndrome, which was its original name, uh, said that it was what women do when they go to court and they allege child sexual abuse against the father. And so this and he Richard really Gardner spun. also advocated child sexual abuse. I mean, Richard right, Gardner he happened to be someone he believed in pedophilia. He thought it was nothing wrong with it and the only thing that was bad about it was that society was so horrified that it would upset the child. Um yeah. and um yes, this man his theory was was basically um taken in by many 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 state courts all over the country, and that belief that child sexual abuse is being, you know, bandied about all over the place, which really has been put out by people who are apologists for abusers, that belief has been completely swallowed whole. And data so far has not has not punctured it, but I'm hoping that this study will at the very least generate a robust debate about, you know, how what do we know or not know about how credible these allegations are and how often they're li- their lies, intentional lies. Um, and well, just, you know, uh, force yeah, courts to think twice about that. Yeah. At the least. corollary, though, is that it's very difficult to require courts to have any specific training. Um, and if they are required to have a particular training, say, you know, you need to have some sort of training in domestic violence, there's no uh, control over who they get the training from, you know, whether That's it's a credible tr- source. Yeah. That's true. Now, um, often know, they get – sorry. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say they often get trainings on domestic violence from good, credible sources like the um, – what's called the Inst- Institute on Domestic Violence, which is run by the National Council of Juvenile Family Court Judges with, the, with Futures Without Violence and a lot of great trainers. But not one of those has done child sexual abuse, to my knowledge. They have steered clear of that, partly because their federal funding has required them to steer clear of it, and partly because it's not really the expertise that they're coming from. They're coming from domestic violence expertise. So that's another part of the problem in the field, which is that child abuse, and particularly child sexual abuse, is a different specialty than domestic violence. And a lot of the people who know and train and educate on DV aren't really doing that about child sexual abuse. And so all of the common myths and misconceptions that are used to deny sexual abuse are, um, you know, alive and well in the family courts. And so it's very hard. You have these so-called experts who really don't know standing up there and saying, I don't think it's credible because of this, and and that this is actually a known fallacy. But either there is no expert to, to refute that, or even if there is one, they don't listen to them because they don't want to believe it, and they want to believe it's not true. It's There's such a thick resistance to believing child sexual abuse in family court. I can't tell you. I mean, I have case after case where I have 
piles of evidence, you know, all kinds of corroborating evidence, including child acting out at school. You know, clearly she was not coached to tell some little boy to go stick his penis in a in a traffic cone. <laughs> Nobody would coach that, and yet she's doing that, and she's doing other things that you know are just acting out what the way kids do who are abused. And all of that gets Bio, ignored in favor of an ex- expert who knows nothing, saying they don't think it's credible. Yeah, I know one situation where the 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 child was. Um, the teacher said the child is acting out sexually to the mother. The mother immediately took the the child to the doctor. The doctor said, yes, this child has been sexually abused. The mother took the child to a psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever. And, yes, the child tells the, the, the mental health professional, daddy is the one who did this. And so the mother files for divorce and makes the court aware that daddy has sexually abused the child. And the court says, the court's response when it made the decision to remove custody from her and give it to the father, was that you didn't have any claims about that before you filed for divorce. Right. That's a very common one. A very common she, belief is that... She didn't have any reason to make those claims. <laughs> right, you know, right, right. As soon as she it. learned it, she filed, right. Or yeah. another scenario that's just like that is... Um, she doesn't know anything's going on with the kid, and then after separation, now that she's not there to either protect the kid and prevent stuff from happening, or because he's punishing her for for the divorce, worse stuff is happening, and the kid is no longer wanting to see the father. So now she has all this information about horrible things going on with dad, and the court still says you never reported anything before. Well, no, it wasn't going on, or I didn't know about it before. I'm reporting it now. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of ways that they criticize the credibility of women who allege this stuff in, in court. And I was in a training recently, which actually was a very productive training, in part because the room was split between the people who said, well, she never reported it before, and she's testifying about it for the first time in custody. Of course I won't believe her. And then the other people in the room who were like, you don't know, women never report this stuff. You can't assume that. You know, and, and so the room did the arguing for me. But, yeah, there are many, many people who still firmly believe that. And, again, it's like there's a desire not to believe. It's much preferable not to believe. I don't do a a lot with courts, but I've done a little bit. And and several years ago I was asked to give a a training, um, uh, and dealing with courts was one of them. And I said, you know, this is not coming from a huge knowledge base. It's just coming from my anecdotal and brief research. But my realization is that the family courts operate under three firmly held beliefs. One is that just because a man is abusive to the wife doesn't mean he will be abusive to the children. The other second belief is every child has to have and needs a relationship with his father. No matter what. Yeah, no matter what. And the third one is she lies. Right. You got it. I think that sums it up. And these come... It's absolutely right. And the no, she lies comes from very long-standing stereotypes. Position. Yeah, the go-to position seems to be, well, she's lying. He can make an outrageous statement. It's like, well, is that true or is it not true? We don't know. Let's consider. She makes an outrageous statement, and <clears throat> clearly she's, she's evil. I, right, and we don't need to believe you know, anything about abuse. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it's just so... Extremely it's unequal. It, it, if you yeah. go to court... As a lawyer in these cases, you feel it. You go to court, you're, it's a custody battle, your client is reporting and alleging abuse, maybe the child is too. You know the minute you set foot in that courtroom, you are hated. You and your client are hated. There's hostility from the judge. I mean, they're going to be polite the if they can. 
Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. The judges do not want this, and they don't want to believe it. They're not open to it. They're angry about being forced to listen to it, and they're skeptical from day one, and they, they hate it. And you are the persona non grata in that case, you as the mother's advocate. And the mother, well, and the other thing that I see is I think that um, when judges make the decision to award custody to a father, it seems to be almost a self-congratulatory kind of thing, like, see – I'm not prejudiced in favor of women. I'm not exactly. By yeah, very much. Gender biases. See, I'm very much. Open. Look I'm how objective. equitable I am. Look how equal-minded yep. I am. And um, yeah. I'm not biased against women, which all everybody on the internet says we courts are biased against uh, against men, fathers. So I'm going to show I'm not. That was my earlier point that they think they're seen as biased against dads, so they're going to prove otherwise. Whereas the reality is. They are biased against women, and that's not being yelled from the rafters. Yeah, the way exactly. the other point is. Well, so where the information for your study? I mean, I was very fortunate to um, see this article, and this article is available for folks. I mean, anybody can Google it and then go online and read this uh, mm-hmm. law and inequality: A Journal of yeah. Theory and Practice, Volume Thirty-Five, Issue Two. Uh, it's Article Number Ten: Mapping Gender, Shedding Empirical Light on Family Courts Treatment of Cases Involving Abuse and Alienation by Jonas. Excuse me, by Jonas Meyer and Sean Dixon. So anybody can access this. What? What do you hope happens as a result of this study? So this study, being a pilot, I am on the one hand trying to get the word out and on the other hand sort of waiting with bated breath to finish my full study, which is so much bigger. But I am certainly hoping that this study and hopefully both studies will help awaken the world, in particular the court system and people, the players in the courts as well as the public and policymakers, that we have a serious problem of family courts failing to protect kids who need protecting and gender bias in family courts against women, against mothers. And I'm hoping it will generate a very serious discussion as opposed to this sort of the, we almost have a kind of a, um, a he said, she said going on in the field like they think you know, they think they're getting a he said, she said in court. We kind of have that going on in the field between the division between the family court professionals and the domestic violence and child abuse professionals. I would like this data to cut through all of that and force people to look at what's really going on and wrestle with the possibility that what we're saying is really true, that the numbers support it. And then I want to see family court practices change. And I have a list of, you know, changes that we've recommended. In fact, several of them are embodied in a resolution that's about to be introduced on Capitol Hill by Congressman, yes, Congressman Meehan from Pennsylvania, Republican from Pennsylvania, and Congresswoman Maloney from New York, Democrat from New York. Um, this is a, a resolution on child safety and family courts, and it's basically asking Cong- uh, if Congress adopts it, it will be saying to the states and to the state courts that, that empirically we know there are some problems in family court with regard to the protection of children where abuse is alleged, and it's recommending a series of what we would say are better or best practices, including putting safety first, which, believe it or not, it isn't now in most courts, um, making that a priority before you ever consider any of these psychological questions about best interests. Um, Children should want to be treated in family court as, 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 as family silverware. They're, they're treated Chattel. like a possession. Yep. Yep. To, to be handed to, awarded to one, one to the other, and it, it appears right. that you know the safety and the concern for that child uh, is secondary. You don't see it. There at all. You don't see it very much at all. 
I agree. Yeah. In part because the child's not in the case. The judge isn't having to talk to the child. I mean, one of the proposals, not in our in our resolution, but one proposal that some people have made is that judges should be required to talk to children in their cases, even if it's only after they make their decision. They should be required to say it to the child's face. Because possibly if they have to look at this little person in the eye and say what they're doing, maybe that will discipline them a little bit to do something that's respectful of the child's needs, maybe. So anyway, that's not our resolution, though. We say safety first. We say no experts who don't have genuine expertise in the relevant topic. We have seen so many cases where so-called experts, evaluators or others, get on the stand and say, I don't have any expertise in child sexual abuse, but I don't think it's true here. And the courts rely on that. Like their their unschooled opinion, which, you know, any of us could give them, uh, they're taking it from this so-called neutral appointee who knows nothing and who's being misled by all kinds of misconceptions. Um, so we're, we're asking for the, what we call this resolution the low-hanging fruit, things that nobody could really argue with. Safety should come first. Experts should actually be experts in the relevant topic. You shouldn't rely on junk science that isn't admissible. You should test, in other words, alienation theory should be tested according to normal admissibility standards, which uh, are supposed to apply to science, but they don't usually bother with that in family court. And uh, we also have a provision in there saying that we think courts should look at how these experts get paid for because there's a lot of bias that flows from having the parties pay, and often the father's the one with more money and the um, the person that is beholden to that that parent. And so asking them to look at that as well. And then we're asking for Congress to hold hearings on basically the human rights of litigants in these cases and, you know, are these cases being handled appropriately and fairly for what we call a justice system. And you you thought you were going to have some you were going to have to testify on that this week or uh no, no. Um we're just um beginning to work on um informing more members to, sign, to to get more co-sponsors to sign on to the proposal. Okay. So right. I was going to have some meetings, and I do have some meetings, but but not today. Okay. All right. Well, please keep us informed on that because that, uh, you know, that that is always what strikes me when I hear about this. I think about that child, and I'm gobsmacked. I, I know that I don't have the mind of a lawyer. I have the mind of a mother, and I have the mind of a talker, and I have, you know, a, not a lawyer's mind. But how can anyone hold the fate of a child in his hands and not be compelled to think of that child's safety first? And I, know. I, I just don't see that a lot. It's, it's partly about burnout and people, you know, they have these cases day in and day out and they're all awful. And at a certain point you sort of turn off as a human being and you just sort of get through your work, right? It becomes a work. I think there's a lot of that. And we have to find ways for the system to humanize the kids and humanize the cases, uh, whether it requires limiting how many cases judges have to do in a month, or I don't, I don't know. I mean, we have all kinds of problems with lack of judges and lack of court resources, but um, it becomes kind of a numb practice, I think, a lot. Well, I think that coupled with the fact that most of us evaluate other people's stories based on our own personal experiences. Yes, if we have much. never experienced domestic violence, we tend to poo-poo your story about domestic right. violence. Especially we when the guy relate. is sitting there and looking perfectly nice and likable. Yes. Doesn't yes. fit. So if we don't have that in our experience, we can't evaluate it the same way. And so we right. tend to 
dismiss it a little bit. We tend to think you're exaggerating. I mean, uh, childbirth, everybody's child. No, there is no easy childbirth. There is no easy divorce. But some of them are a heck of a lot worse than others. But right, definitely. But that heck of a lot worse, you think right. everything is measured by? By yours, yep, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge and, challenge. And I, oh, yeah, yeah. Joan, our time is up. I thank you so much for coming on with and telling us about your new research. I can't wait to see more that comes out based on this study because I'm sure there is going to be more. <laughs> there is going to be more, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So please keep us informed. Thank you for sharing, and I will keep my fingers crossed and you know do whatever I can to get the word out so that things change for families and children in family courts. Thank you for the work. Yeah. You thank you, Heather. Thank you for doing it, and thank you for the work you do. Okay. See you next week women.